0: The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. According to one survey, nine out of ten Americans celebrate Christmas. Uh, That survey is in an article called Christmas, a Non-Religious Holiday for Half of Americans. And so, interestingly, that survey found that, quote, religious and non-religious Americans largely celebrate the holiday in the same way. So if you were to visit a non-Christian's home during Christmas or a Christian's home, the celebration would look the same. And it all speaks to the, the, the ubiquity or the presence everywhere of Christmas in American society. It's everywhere. In one form or another, religiously or culturally, it's just plain popular, the article says. And even among some non-Christians who celebrate, they say there is a religious element to Christmas. What struck me as I was reading that article um, is even though most everyone celebrates and shops and eats and gathers, no one complains about getting off work, a large group of Americans don't understand why. And there's several angles we could take you know, in thinking about this, but, but I want to take a slightly different one than, than trying to, to, to send you on a crusade to get Merry Christmas back in the, the cultural vernacular. Like, that's not our main goal. I just want to observe this morning that God has actually been doing this, this thing that he's doing in Christ for some time now in unexpected fashion, showing his rule and plans and goodness as recognized by everyone. Even those who don't know him, even those who are seeking to oppose him. And so we can find comfort this Christmas, and I want us to, in God's goodness and in God's sovereignty, knowing that he's going to receive glory his way. And sometimes those ways are unexpected ways, but he will receive glory his way from every corner of the planet. That's what Christmas is about. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about Christmas from the Old Testament. And that may sound a little bit strange um, if you're new to kind of church or thinking about um, the way that the Bible sort of presents the story about Jesus. It's supposed to be in the New Testament. But but God was preparing a way thousands of years before that moment. And that preparation took some unusual twists and turns along the way. And today we're going to look at one of those places in the book of Numbers. And so, just a little bit about Numbers, if you're not familiar with the book. Moses is the author of of Numbers, and it serves basically as his travel itinerary uh, about his journey with God and God's people in the wilderness, kind of on their way to the promised land. The name Numbers uh, probably comes from the the census counts that you find in the book, where they're counting uh, people. You see it in chapters 1 to 4, chapters 26... But the Hebrew name for this book is actually just uh, in the wilderness. And it, it tells the story of two kind of generations in Israel, one faithful and one unfaithful. And so Numbers opens with Israel at Mount Sinai, where that's kind of where the, they were left off in the, in the, in the book of Exodus. And, and they're, they're there at the mountain, and then they break camp in chapter 10. And then they arrive at the promised land in chapter 12. And everyone's excited, and they're there. But as you, if you know, if you're familiar with the story, they rebel there against God's command to enter, chapters 13 and 14, and because they don't, they spend the next 38 years or so in the wilderness. And then finally, they end up along the plains of Moab, which is just east of the promised land in chapter 22, and, and that's where they're going to remain until they receive the book of Deuteronomy, and that's actually where our story begins, the story that we're going to look at together this morning. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, it's in this section of Numbers that we see a pagan, someone who's not of the people of God, prophet or seer, who's been approached by a pagan king, not of the people of God, to curse the people of God. But instead, he makes a prophecy about the coming king of the people of God that's fulfilled in the first Christmas. And so we're going to see in this story God's amazing sovereignty and his unchanging faithfulness and timeless power in fulfilling a very unexpected promise. And so if you're taking notes, I'm just going to, I'm going to cover a good bit of Numbers 22 to 24. So you want to have your Bible open and we're going to look through some of those chapters together just to understand the context of this prophecy that I read there at the beginning. So if you're taking notes, the outline is in your bulletin. First, we're going to see an unlikely messenger. We're going to spend some time thinking about the one who speaks this message that we find in chapter 24. And then secondly, we're going to think about the message itself, an unexpected message. And so I just pray that as we prepare our hearts to consider God's grace to us in the gospel, and especially in the incarnation, God becoming man, that that. The promises of God, even from the Old Testament, would serve to strengthen and encourage us. So, so first I want us to learn a little bit about this person who's delivering this Christmas promise, you know, in the Old Testament. So number one, an unlikely messenger. There's two main characters that you need to know about in these, these chapters. Uh, the first is this guy named Balaam. And, and he is kind of, like I said, a pagan seer or prophet from Mesopotamia. And he's going to get paid, by, or, or he's going to be offered to be paid by a pagan king to curse Israel because that king is threatened by Israel. Israel's going to come and, and conquer them. And Balaam, is, he's a little bit complicated. So if you've studied this story before, you'll know that it's not, it's not real black and white at first look. Uh, he seems to be kind of a faithful prophet who speaks the word of, of God and only God's words. But if you look at the rest of the way the Bible speaks about Balaam, you can see it's, it's clearly in a negative light. Uh, he's someone, the Bible says, who's out for money. He's, he's a shady character. He's got a donkey who has higher moral standards than he does, who has more spiritual insight than he does. Uh, he's even listed in a few places as an enemy to Israel. So, so think about the book of Revelation, for example. John's writing to these churches in Revelation uh, 1 to 3. And in chapter 2, we read this. He's writing to the church at Pergamum. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to, to put st- a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look at this guy's kind of morality and his his angle. And that's going to help us as we go through the story. And John mentioned there the other major character in our story. So we have Balaam, but the other one you want to know about is the king of Moab, who hires Balaam to curse Israel, and his his name is Balak. Balak. And so look, just turn to Numbers 22, and you get a flavor for the way the story begins. Numbers 22, verse 1. And then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zephor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass from the field. So Balak the son of Zephor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river at the land of the people of Amnah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. And they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees of divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message." So, so Balak is this desperate king of Moab who is threatened by people, God's people, Israel, and he's gonna pay someone to, to curse them. And, and then you know something about Balaam from those verses, don't you? He's a diviner, he's a, he's a sorcerer, a seer. And so we're going to read later in the book of Deuteronomy that anyone who practices divination or tells a fortune that interprets omens or is a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, I mean, you pick the, the, the term, they inquire of the dead, they're an abomination to the Lord. That's Deuteronomy 18. And so divination is often associated with magic and using supernatural powers, particularly evil powers, and it's seen as a way to stand really in the place of God, to take God's place and manipulate history. And you pick up on that, don't you? Even in Balak's flattery of Balaam in verse 6, he says, whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. And so, you know, that's language that's reserved for Yahweh, for God alone. The God who blesses and the God who curses. Genesis 12, to 3 is a, is a kind of a, a key foundational text for understanding the rest of the Old Testament in the Bible. This promise that God gives to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Balaam is taking the place of God, isn't he? And so the messengers arrive at his house with payment. And it gets pretty interesting from there. They lay out Balak's plan. Balaam tells them to stay with him that night, and he's going to go inquire of the Lord. You see that in verse 8. And, and w- notice what he says there in verse 8. If, if you're looking at your Bible, it's the Lord in all capitals. Capital L-O-R-D. And that, that's Yahweh's personal name. And, and later, Balaam is going to even say, the Lord my God. Verse 18. And, and so he's saying and giving the impression that he knows God. That this is the true God of Israel, and he's in relationship with him. And as we read the story, we're going to see God indeed does speak to him. But the narrator consistently uses a more kind of generic term for God when he talks about God and Balaam talking together, just the term that means God. You see it again in, ver- in verse 9, verse 10, verse 12, verse 20. So I just think that's a little pointer for us to pick up on, that, that Balaam is being deceptive. He's saying to everyone else, I have a relationship with the one true God. But the narrator is saying, kind of using this more generic term, kind of the way Balaam might approach other spirits, kind of in the, in the spiritual realm. So what does God say? Well, look down at verse 12. We're in Numbers 22, verse 12. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zephor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his whole house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord, my God, and do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord has said to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes to Moab. Moab. Now there's definitely some positive things we could observe about Balaam here, some good things that he does. He faithfully delivers God's message, not once but twice. He makes it clear that whatever God says goes. Even if Balak gives him his whole house full of silver and gold, he could not go beyond the command of the Lord, I think that we would be thrilled if we knew that every Christian pastor, preacher, counselor, Christian would have that kind of mentality, that kind of high view of God's word. I'm, I'm going to go as far as the word says to go, and then after that I'm going to leave it to the Lord to work out his providence the way that he would do it. I'm not going to try to manipulate my life and manipulate history. But this is coming from a pagan sorcerer. Like, how is he communicating with God like this? How is God speaking through a man like this? And I think we just need to be reminded that there are dark, supernatural powers at work in the world and even in our passage. But God is sovereign and powerful over those powers. His his promises will come to pass for his glory. And he sees right through Balaam's Motives. We're going to read in verse 22 that the Lord was angry with Balaam because he went with the men, even though he just told him to go. And I think that points to Balaam's motives. And I think that points to his heart for going. Later in verse 20, 32, the angel of the Lord gets in front of Balaam and, and, and says, your way is perverse before me. Your way is perverse. And so, so, so we see kind of, kind of where maybe behind the scenes Balaam is. But in the next scene, the Lord gives him a picture of really what his role is in this whole thing. And so let's just see what happens next. Let's pick it up in verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field, and Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow place between the vineyards, with a wall on either side. and when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth, just pause right there, right? The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, "He's like he doesn't skip a beat, he just talks right back, because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey, said, the donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that, that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with them, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Interesting story. We see that the the donkey in some ways is, in some ways, a picture of what Balaam should be. He should be a faithful servant to his master, faithful to his master's commands. He, He sees the angel of the Lord, fears him, saves Balaam's life. But really, I think what Balaam is seeing here is a a sense of what he's really like. He gets a sense of what it's like to have a a disobedient servant, a donkey, that would not do what he wanted him to do. He was making him out to be a fool, and Balaam threatened to kill him, which would be the the, the penalty for for disobeying these orders, and in some ways pronounces his own death sentence. This This is what he is sort of doing under God's command. So it's like a parable of what he's, what he's doing here. And I think there's lots of lessons we could learn from this story. I think one for sure is a lesson in humility. Like God is sovereign. God can use whoever he wants, whenever he wants, to carry out his purposes and will. He can use a donkey to preach his word. He can use a donkey to share the, the news that he wants to share. That's humbling for a pastor to hear. Those of us that might think too much of ourselves, too highly of ourselves. Well, oh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sophisticated and, and God kind of needs me to do these things. Well, no, actually, he can use a donkey. And we're reminded that we, we need to be incredibly dependent on God to reveal himself to us. If God doesn't open Balaam's eyes, he doesn't see this angel of the Lord that's about to kill him. But we need to re- be reminded how dependent we are on God. We need to also see that Balaam, he's well thought of. He's he's got a good reputation for being kind of religiously important and and famous. But but God is in opposition to him in all of that. Peter reminds us later in his his New Testament letter to to the churches of Asia Minor that, that some like Balaam will come to the church. Some false teachers and blind guides and Peter tells the church, you need to remember that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Don't, don't, don't resort to these wicked, underhanded ways. He says, you should watch out for teachers that would have their hearts trained in greed and eyes that would be full of adultery. And then in verse 15, he says, they forsake the way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So Balaam's motives are laid bare. They're exposed here. He's in this thing for gain, for financial gain, gain for his reputation, and he's willing to do whatever it takes in the name of the Lord to get it. But even a man as powerful and deceptive as he is, is not above God. God always wins. God reigns. His message goes forward. He, he can't be manipulated. He can't be ultimately duped. You can't outrun God. You can't outrun away from God. And so Balaam's story, I just think, invites each of us this Christmas to examine our own motives, particularly as we find ourselves maybe in a just plug-in and play routine of what Christmas is about of what, what, what we're kind of exuding from our own lives. That we would not just be, be those that show things kind of from the outside, but really what's going on on the inside. What does God think of the path that we're walking on? What is God's opinion of the way that we're giving our life? What we're giving our life to? Now think about your sin for a minute. You know, Balaam is, is, is in sin and about to be judged for his sin. He's only saved by the skin of his teeth, by God's mercy, through this miraculous speaking donkey. And what if there was an angel standing in your path with a drawn sword? wonder how much we really fear God as we as we think about our sin in relation to his holiness and what he's done for us in Christ or even if we don't know him and what it means to to be guilty before a holy God our sin has consequences we can't understand Christmas without knowing that so now that Balaam is he's kind of narrowly escaped death he's learned a lesson from his donkey the Lord calls him to continue with these men, to, to go meet with Balak, and he does. And he's going to deliver God's message, and only God's message. And so it's to that message that I want us to turn to now. So, an unlikely messenger is delivering a very unexpected message. That's number two an unexpected mes- m- message. Balak is excited. His, his spiritual assassin has arrived. And in great show of respect for a messenger, he, he goes out to meet him. He arrives near the border of Moab. We're at the end of kind of chapter 22, if you're just following along. And he asks, why did it take you so long to get here? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I can offer you, what I can give you? Anything you want, anything your heart desires will be yours if you'll only curse Israel. But I think this interaction with the donkey has has had an impact on Balaam. Notice the way he responds to that kind of offer in verse 38. Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. So he and Balak depart together. And the next day... The king brings his, his prophet out to this special place where he can only look and see the fringes of the people of, of Israel. And he wants to give him kind of a good angle to sort of throw out his curses. And Balaam asks Balak to build him seven altars and prepare seven bulls and rams for sacrifice. And when he does that, he's going to go and see if he can meet with God. And he's going to do this multiple times. There's really seven messages or oracles or prophecies that Balaam gives up to the end of chapter 24. We're not going to look at all of them. But the first that he gives is there in verse 7 of chapter 23. So look with me there. Chapter 23, verse 7. And Balaam took up his discourse. So this is after he's gone to kind of meet with God and, and the sacrifices have been made and God's given him a word. And this is what he says. From Aram... "'Balak has brought me, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. "'Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. "'How can I curse whom God has not cursed? "'How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? "'For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. "'Behold a people dwelling alone, and not counting itself among the nations. "'Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number the fourth part of Israel?' Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So there you go. Balaam is not sovereign over blessing and cursing. And Balak is not too happy about this. And Balaam has done this. He's he's instead of cursing, he's he's highlighted or blessed the people. We see their evidence of God's promise to Abraham back in chapter twelve already coming to fruition in their big great numbers. And to show that they are distinct, they're special among all the nations, he blesses Israel. But Balak is not going to be deterred so easily. Maybe another location would produce a better result, another angle. And so the same scenario is repeated again later in chapter 23. Altars, bulls, goats, sacrifices. Pick it up in verse 18. This is what God tells him to say. Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zephor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel, Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold, a people as a lioness that rises up and a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Balak is receiving an education on who the one God is. He is not like a man who can be manipulated or who would change his mind. He's not like other gods that have specific territories that they rule over, specific areas of life that they're in charge of, and others that they're not, that are off limits. If he has promised something, it will be fulfilled. If he is blessed, there is no way to revoke it. Israel is like a lion about to devour its prey. Well, Balak is determined to give this another shot. So he takes Balaam to a better angle, another place. Seven altars built, more bulls and rams sacrificed. And this time, it happens a little bit differently. Turn over to chapter 24, verse 1. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. We see this happening often in the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord coming upon people for a task or a message. It came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Here's the lion again. Who will rouse him up? Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. So from cursing them, Balaam has now blessed God's people for the third time, Reminding Balak of their great numbers, God's great favor, their great strength, God keeping his promise to them, God's presence with them. This is not what Balak signed up for. So he makes that really clear. His frustration comes out. Verse 10, Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam and he struck his hands together. So he claps his hands together and Balak says to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore, I now flee, therefore now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. In other words, you're not getting paid. You're going to have to get, you know, the Lord will have to take care of you for what you've done. For the blessing of God rests on Israel. It protects them from all this cursing, from all the attack of her enemies. Balaam is not done. So Balak is done. But Balaam's next oracle is the last one that we're going to look at together. And he he gives it, even though Balak doesn't want to hear it. He's like, before you go, just kind of a parting shot, let's look not just at the present reality of Israel, but the future. And this is where kind of our focal point comes in as we're thinking about it this morning. Look at verse 15 again. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, he who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. The remaining oracles that he gives which we won't look at are against the Amalekites and the Kenites and the peoples of the west. But our focal point here, I just want us to look at these verses 15 to 17 and think about those references that maybe we're familiar with thinking about through Christmas or, or even thinking about the story, the, the scepter and, and the star, both point to royalty. You know, a ruler's scepter and the, the star associated with the king. So, so in the future, Balaam sees a king that will come out of Jacob, out of Israel, so a male Israelite, Whose coming is going to be associated with the arrival of a star and the rising of a scepter. And this king is going to defeat God's enemies. He's going to defeat Moab. But the language that he uses isn't just general language of defeat. He's going to notice, crush the forehead of Moab. Not only does that point to to Balak's defeat, but a greater defeat, I think, of a greater, more deceptive enemy. And I think this looks past even to the Davidic king, even David that would come out of Israel, a man after God's own heart, who would slay his enemies on the forehead. We think back even to Genesis 3, when the world was turned upside down by sin and God spoke these words to the ancient serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That word bruise could be translated crush as well. So you have here a connection between the blessing of Abraham in Genesis 12 and the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head in Genesis 3. Those two promises coming together through this pagan sorcerer speaking God's word. The one king from Jacob who will come and judge and defeat our enemies forever. Here is the, the great Christmas prophecy. Here is the promise of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the great roaring lion from Judah. The king who was righteous and holy, whose life that he lived on earth was without sin. He perfectly obeyed God and then sought to undo the curse that was against his people, by inflicting that penalty on himself. To defeat it, he died in our place. Jesus took the punishment for our sin by dying on the cross. His his life was laid down as a substitute for sinners. And at that moment, although, although Satan had bruised his heel at the cross, Jesus had crushed his head, defeated him, and freed God's people from his accusations against us. They were nailed to the cross. And three days later, he rose, alive, victorious, and reigning forever. Friends, this is the message that we celebrate together of Christmas. No matter who you are this morning, what your background, you can have access to this mercy that comes through Christ. Turn from your sins. Turn from your own deception, your own living for yourself, and put your trust in, In Christ, in this one who died for you and was raised, and you will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will have God as your father, eternal life with him as your future. And in Christ, you'll be safe and secure. No curse, no accusation can stand against you because Jesus took the curse upon himself. He paid the price, and he stands now as your advocate. Nothing can ultimately harm us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. God displays his sovereign rule and plans by speaking them here in this Old Testament text from a very unlikely messenger. He reigns. He's sovereign. He rules over all. So, friends, don't be like Balaam. Don't, don't, don't have all of that information in your, in your mind And then not embrace it yourself. Despite all that he saw and all that he heard from God and all that he said for God, Balaam didn't trust God for his own salvation. He doesn't embrace, as far as we can tell from kind of the the breadth of the whole Bible, the message that he preaches. Think about the message. Moses didn't have this message. Aaron, Joshua, Nathan, none of them had this kind of promise. It was Balaam on a mission to curse God's people. It is possible to be in a fellowship even like ours and we're we're trying to make the most of God's word and be be diligent to preach it and understand it to to miss it and not embrace the truth for ourselves. It's not enough to merely know the claims of the word of God. But we need to by faith believe that the word of God is what the word of God says it is and believe the promise and command that the word of God gives us that all those and only those who rest and trust in Christ alone for salvation. That he's offered to us in the gospel. Only those will fellowship with God forever. I and mean, Don't miss that. That's Christmas. It's an offer of grace. It's an offer of relationship with God. And we know the way the story moves into the New Testament. Matthew records it this way. Matthew 2, chapter 1 Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Again, we see pagan kings, maybe seers, wise men, involved in making known God's promised king. They had seen the star. Matthew's telling us that the prophecy of that pagan prophet Balaam had been understood by these wise men from the east. And some 1,400 years later, he's here and they're there. And all the blessings of Abraham and the the promises of the seed of the woman and the defeat of our enemies and Balaam's prophetic words are fulfilled in this baby. So yes, there might be a religious element to Christmas after all. God became man to dwell with us, to die for us, to save us. Friend, have you responded to that joyful good news? Turn from your sins, put your trust in Christ, follow him as your king. Let's pray as we close. Father, we thank you for your word that is timeless, Lord, that points us to Christ and to your glory. Lord, we pray that there would be a a gravity and a weight upon our hearts as we uh, think on these truths, as we think on our desperate need of rescue and your grace provided in a perfect, sufficient Savior. Lord, we pray that we would be uh, faithful messengers of your word as we interact with family and friends and coworkers this month, as we have an opportunity to even maybe bring up what this means, or we pray that we'd be faithful and that you would open eyes, that you would open people's eyes to see the truth and see their need for Christ and his glorious beauty. Draw them to yourself, we pray. Lord, we love you and thank you for this congregation. We thank you for the time that we have together to worship you, to submit our lives to Christ afresh and anew every every Sunday. We pray that you be doing a work in our hearts now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.